Hey, it's Pastor Wolfman there. The Worldwide Bible Class from today. That's the audio that I'm about to post up here. It was fantastic uh, to see Luther exposit Rebecca's life, especially as she decides to send Jacob away. He's talking about the the balance between trusting God and using the means that he gives. It's how can we have both faith and action and avoid the twin dangers of inaction and despair or complete passivism and complete um, the idea that we got to make things activism. That's the word that we got to do it ourselves. So here it is worldwide audio from the worldwide Bible class on Genesis 27 verses 42 to 45. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word we might embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you've given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. Amen. Uh, by the way, let me show, before I turn off the screen, look at my, what Hannah got me for my birthday. Uh, I'm kind of a big deal on YouTube mug. I thought you guys would appreciate that. Let me just take a big deal sip here. Okay, to the text. Uh, we are in... Genesis chapter 27, verses 43 to 45 today. I'm skipping a little bit, skipping a little bit, uh, just a couple pages here that talks about mm, the misfortunes of the godly. Uh, what more shameful than we demand from God safety, deliverance, and blessings in a physical and spiritual matters. Meanwhile, practice idolatry in spite of this. Uh, we, we talk about, this is Luther's talking here about how we, um, like we complain to God that he doesn't bless us, but we do all sorts of stupid stuff. Anyway, I, I want to skip down to, I want to skip down to verse 43 here because, okay, so where we are is, um, we'll remember that number one, God promised the older will serve the younger way back in chapter 26. Remember that Esau and Isaac uh, were fighting against that promise. Rebecca, no, she was fighting for the promise. Uh, we'll remember that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. We'll remember that then when they were both 77 years old, that Isaac was going to give the birthright, going to give the blessing to Esau, but Rebecca really led the charge to get the blessing to the right boy, Jacob. So uh, it, it, and it occurred to me this morning that Rebecca is really the hero in this whole story. I mean, she's the one that's holding on to the promise when all the guys are, they're, they're tempted to look at strength and political power and everything rather than being concerned with the promise. So more of that today. Because then Isaac blesses Jacob, leaves, Esau comes in, and we had this idea, you know, this big kind of royal hunting party. And now he's going to be given the official thing, high priest and king. It's a coronation and ordination and everything all at once. And he comes in and Jacob says, hey, I, I or uh, Isaac says, I already blessed Jacob. Ooh. So then Esau leaves and he's infuriated. He wants to, he says, 
I'm and his wives and everyone plots like you got to kill that kid. I mean, he's 77. You got to kill your twin brother. So you can have it all. And he wasn't even private about that so that Rebecca hears about it. And so now Rebecca's going to again, as the hero of the story, is going to make arrangements for Jacob's exile, for his flight. And she also does it with an eye in toward him getting married. So remember, we're all ta we're talking about the seed promise. And here you have Esau, who's got two wives and children, 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 I guess. And he, and but now the blessing goes to Jacob, who's not even married yet, 77 years old. If you're 77 years old and you're still single, don't give up. Because here's this is what's going to happen. So, OK, so now we're at the text. So so here we are, Rebecca. Um, is going to send Jacob away for his own safety and also for his own benefit. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Well, let's just verse 42 over here. And here, and the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. How amazing that this, that we, you know, that... That the comfort that uh, that we want is the comfort of we 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 do this all this time all the time right? Someone sins against us, and we say, "Oh, look, I can I can make it right if I can if I can have justice, and so I'll I'll make it right." And that we so we comfort ourselves with justice rather than mercy. We comfort ourselves with getting even rather than the forgiveness of sins. I mean, we're, we're the same. So he's got this plot to kill Jacob, his twin brother. And then he can get all the stuff he wanted. Now, therefore, my son. Okay, so picking up in verse 30, 43. Here's Rebecca. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran. And stay with him a few days. A few days. That ends up being what, 10, 14 years, maybe? Until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you've done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? So the, the idea that Jacob will die and then Esau will have to be put to death for murder, etc., Lose both sons. So here now, Rebecca has a plot of his flight. Now, um, it says a few days. It ends up being not just a few days, not just a few weeks or months, or even a few years, but a bunch of years. And we don't hear from Rebecca anymore. This is, as far as I remember, this is going to be the end of of uh, of Rebecca. So that she must die while. Jacob is over in exile. Okay, so let's see what old Luther has to teach us. The Hebrew word hama denotes a violent anger, which is a glowing heat. It's from yaham, to heat, to glow. As the poet describes anger, 
wrath becomes inflamed and resentment flares up in his sturdy bones. This is uh, Virgil. Luther would all oftentimes go back to the these pagan poets and he learned that stuff pretty well. In this way, Esau too burned with anger. So we, you know that that when someone their temper flares up. We we've ta even talked about it when someone has a short fuse and their and their anger is burning. It's a rage. It was Dr. Schultz that taught me that rage is the first word of the Western canon in the Aeneid. Rage, Achilles, rage. The, the, uh, but that's this this kind of when the heart's on fire. Uh, which Luther will talk about. Rebecca thinks that her son should consider flight, lest it seem that she was rashly exposing him to danger if she kept him with her. For a heart inflamed with anger has the audacity to do anything. Thus, it's commonly said that anger is a brief madness. Who says that? Horace. Anger is a brief madness. One of the things that anger does, and this is, maybe of interest to us as we think about these things is that anger serves as a um anger serves as a like a numbing to the conscience so remember when you go to the dentist and here's your mouth <laughs> this is a very accurate picture of your teeth and then the dentist comes in there with the old novocaine this is, hey, Pastor, why don't you draw a picture of uh, Novocaine? Okay, you got it. I'm here for you. So here's the Nova. Zoop. And now you get a, you get this numbness that's kind of around here, you know. You, you sort of lose sense. You lose your um, sense of pain and whatever there. That anger is like this in the conscience. So here's my conscience that tells me that I'm supposed to love. Uh and yet, when when I'm ang when anger goes in there, then I can't feel it. Uh, I can't feel it when I sin against someone. I can get away with something, and it doesn't even trouble me. So anger is like the uh, the the heart on fire. This is the the numbing of the conscience. It doesn't bother me when I hurt and harm my neighbor. We can make a T-shirt out of that picture. I think we could. I think we could make a picture. Uh, one must get out of the way of this madness. Uh, Leanne says, we lose our sense of right and wrong. Yeah, that's it. You get, especially when, so if someone sins against me, this is what happens right now. I don't need to, um, I don't need to love them. They're my enemy. I got to get even. I got to get, I got to make things right. So Esau is so enraged and all he can think of is making things right. The injustice done to him. And it's not safe for anybody, especially for Jacob. One must get out of the way of madness. Here's just good old-fashioned horse sense from Luther. Lest any angry person vent his rage on you and inflict harm that can never be healed afterwards. You know this. When you get so when someone, we even have it, we, we, the language of hothead. You know, if, if someone is, if they're boiling over, if they're, if they're, if there's steam coming out the ears, there's no talking sense. There's just, you know, it was wise on the part of Rebecca to consider and say, we do not want to test God and say, 
he who has blessed you will also preserve you. Now notice that this is an interesting thing, the difference between trusting God and testing God. And, and, and Luther's going to watch how Rebecca navigates those two things, trusting God, testing God. So Rebecca has the promise that Jacob has the blessing and his seed will, the Messiah will come from him. So just like Abraham had the promise that Isaac would have children and children and children, and so he was willing even to sacrifice him at the word of the Lord, so now that that promise belongs to belongs to Jacob, and yet Rebecca is not does not want to test the Lord and say, "Well, the Lord's bless you; He'll preserve you." God does what He has resolved, but we remember He does so through means. He does so through means. So, how will the Lord preserve? Jacob, well, through his exile. Therefore, she believes that the church and the blessing must be protected. Nevertheless, she makes use of the means God has granted for avoiding danger. This example should be carefully noted on account of those who refer everything to predestination and thus do away with all the activities and means God has ordained. This is very interesting. This, is, this is, should be understood now as a theological point that Luther's going to make. And he's going to say that there's a danger theologically in being too wrapped up in predestination, or philosophically, this is also deterministic. Like, what's going to happen is going to happen, so you just let it happen. You don't have to do anything. And you forget what the mean, you forget the means. It's it's very interesting for us to note that this is probably one of the marks of Calvinism, that predestination gets such a emphasized place that the means of grace become neglected. This is what they say, the, those who are tempted this way. If these things must happen, they will happen of necessity, even without work on my part. And what's the risk? Or if they should expose themselves to needless dangers, they promise themselves protection and defense, since God would do this of necessity in accordance with his promise. These are thoughts are wicked and impious or impious. It's like the Lord has counted my days. I know that uh, I'll live until the days that the Lord has appointed. So I'll go do all sorts of stupid stuff risking my life because if I'm going to die, I'm going to die anyways. And if I'm going to live, I'm going to, the Lord will protect me. This is putting God to the test. These thoughts are wicked and impious because God wants you to make use of the means you have at your disposal. He wants you to embrace the opportunity presented to you and to use it. Since it is through you, he wants to accomplish the things he has ordained through you. He wants to accomplish the things he's ordained. So we can't say, well, the Lord has chosen who's going to believe, so we don't need to preach the gospel because God will make Christians out of them one way or another. Well, okay, true. God will make Christians out of them one way or another, but he's told you to preach the gospel. He's told you to baptize and to give out the body and the blood. He's told you to serve your neighbor. He's, he's put you in this life. 
the Lord will cause the children to be born that'll be born, but he's given you your wife or your husband and said, be fruitful and multiply. So we don't despise the, because the predestination, because the Lord is the Lord of history and doing all these things, doesn't give us the authority to forget or despise the means that the Lord uses to accomplish them because they are us. Well, not always us, but oftentimes. For thus he, the Lord, wanted your father to beget you and your mother to nourish you, although he would have been able to create and nourish you without parents. But he doesn't. Thus in common life, the necessary works have to be performed. One has to sow, plant, seek provisions, etc. God can make it rain bread from heaven. But he said, get after it, go to work. God could cause the rocks to praise Jesus. But he's told us to preach the gospel to all nations. Afterward, God will do what he wants. But if you say, I'll not give milk to the child, for it ought to live, it will live. Can you imagine? You will deceive yourselves and sin grievously. You know, often this, there's an attitude like this spiritually with, uh, uh, with children where it's sometimes like, well, I'll wait till they grow up and then I'll let them decide. Oh, okay. It's like, I'll wait till they can, till they can cook dinner and then they can have, then they can eat. What? God has given breasts to mothers in order that to the mother that she may nurse her child. Although he could nourish the infant without milk, he does not want to do so. Consequently, one should make use of the means ordained by him. This is, again, just kind of some horse sense. But, but fighting against a the theological danger of determinism or predestination. Thus, Rebecca could have concluded with certainty, my son Jacob will not be killed, nor will the blessing be revoked. She had the promise after all. She believed the promise. Nevertheless, she does not neglect her duty, but she says to Jacob, flee. And also this, flee to my brother Laban until your brother's anger ceases and is allayed. Although God could protect you, every opportunity the devil might have must be forestalled. You see how your brother is now wandering about in the house in a towering rage, and if he were to take hold of you, he would undoubtedly kill you. If Esau's heart were to be appeased by his father, yet there's no less danger from his relatives by marriage, his wives, and his children, who could not be so easily placated. It's interesting. Even though Esau has been placated, they will design evil against you since they know that they are doing something that pleases their father Esau, therefore. So not only is Jacob in danger from Esau, but from his wives and from his children and maybe grandchildren at this point. Let's see, Esau would have had kids that would have been 37 or 36 years old, so they could also have children of their own who could have been 10. So probably not, probably he's in danger from his kids, but maybe not grandkids, but anyway. Therefore, since you're able to flee to my brother to avoid this danger, make use of this opportunity and plan. Meanwhile, we shall placate both the relatives by marriage and the daughters-in-law. We shall instruct them concerning the divine will, namely that God foresaw and ordained this in this manner. Just go away for a time. I'll exert myself that their hearts may be appeased. I shall go to them, talk with them, and pray to God. This is outstanding prudence on the part of this very saintly woman who takes excellent care of herself and of her son in such a great disturbance, which she 
she has stirred up and in such great danger. For both the house and the church of Isaac were greatly disturbed and confused. Nor could hearts embittered by just resentment become gentle so suddenly. Just resentment. That uh, I, I think this should not be here understood as like only resentment, but as I think what Luther's saying is righteous resentment. In other words, this, uh, th this sense that I've been wronged and I need to right the wrong that's happened to me. Rebecca sees this. Nevertheless, she does not tempt God, nor does she despair, for both things must be done. One, whew, this is good, two, in, in despair, okay, in danger, you have to do two things here. Number one, do not tempt God. Number two, do not despair of deliverance. Okay. So, so you see the danger. The kind of the uh, the, uh, the the horse on both sides. Let's see if I can let's see if I can draw it out here, because there's going to be a middle there's going to be a middle way. Uh, uh, act and trust. Let's put it this way: act and trust. So we have to do both. And the acting and trusting sometimes fight against each other. We say, well, no, if I, if I trust, then I'm not going to act. I'm going to do nothing. Do you see? Uh, I'm not going to act. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wait for the Lord to do things. And sometimes we're, we should wait for the Lord, but not always. Or on the other thing, on the other side, I'm going to act and I'm going to despair. You, you see that you see the danger so uh, so normally let's see let me get, grab a different color here so normally if i i'm going to act because i'm despairing or i'm going to trust and do nothing and 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 luther's saying that when we're when we're in the midst of danger we have to act and trust what did someone say trust god and lock your car lock your car so, so, so that acting is not an indication that I don't trust, but it can be, but it doesn't have to be. And trusting doesn't mean that I don't do anything. I can. I can look at the means that the Lord has given me. So, so we see we see the dangers that often, oftentimes these two things act against each other. They they push against each other. So we have to hold them together. Look, it's good to act, but that shouldn't push us to despair. It's good to trust, but that shouldn't push us to inaction. <laughs> Trish says, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. <laughs> oh, I don't know that one, but that's great. Um, <laughs> uh, so Trish also, an author that I like said, anytime anyone says to her, it was meant to be, she countered with a nonsensical, yes. And anything can happen with knives. <laughs> that's, I think that's, that really captures it, doesn't it? That this tension here, this serves, let's, Luther's going to um, push on this a little bit. So this will be good. Oh, it's a song. What is a country song, I bet. 
This serves to teach and praise from the 40s. Nice. I'll have to look that up. That's a little before my time, the 40s. Uh, this the the boomers know these songs. All right, I got the, I, it's the boomer chat. This serves to teach and comfort the church. Luther says, whose image is presented here, for it is always in very great dangers and evils, dangers and evils which, according to human reason, one cannot escape. And save, Lord, we're perishing. Is you is its usual cry and label. This is uh, this is when the boat is sinking. The waves are overwhelming it, and the disciples are cry out, "Save, Lord, we perish." And and Luther says that's the normal cry of the church. <laughs> uh, Save, Lord, we're perishing. Nevertheless, it the church does not perish. It's tossed about by unceasing waves and storms, so that nothing else than destruction is in sight, and we cry out, "We are perishing." Nevertheless, there is safety in God. Thus, in such great difficulties, Rebecca and Jacob rely on God's promise and eventually surmount and overcome these difficulties, but not without means. Then one should learn from this. And again, look at how Rebecca is, the, is really the hero here, the whole thing. Then one should also learn from this example in order that we may not despair immediately about people who sin but may consider that word which Christ speaks in reply to his disciples when they urged him not to return to Judea shortly before this, uh, uh, before this, the Jews had wanted to stone him. He asks, are there not 12 hours in the day? This means that in time, hearts change, are mollified, are placated, the result that they amend their wickedness. Now, in this case, the hearts of the Jews in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, did not change. It only grew more enraged than Jesus. But here, okay, here is the point. Number one, the person who is your enemy now, it is not, it is not the case that they will always be your enemy. It doesn't have to be that way. It might be. But the scriptures teach us here, and the wisdom that we're learning is that it won't always be that way. Esau and Jacob are reconciled, although maybe tenuously, but they are reconciled. We, we tend to think that, look, I've got all my enemies here, and the enemies that I have now will, all, will be my enemies tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and for the rest of my life, I will only always have these enemies. No, that's not the case. And here we get to a bigger point. And I, I, I think I've talked to you all about this, and I we need to work on this as Lutherans, because one of the things that I think, if you're not Lutheran, you should be Lutheran and then work on this. But in the meantime, I think that we have lost the expectation of conversion. We think that, oh, the person who is the enemy of God now will be the enemy of God tomorrow. The person who is not in the church now will not be in the church tomorrow. The person who is not a Christian now will not be a Christian tomorrow. And that is not, that is, the Holy Spirit has not authorized us to that despair. In fact, the Holy Spirit calls us to the audacity of trusting that the Lord changes hearts. 
So there's, we all have people who we wish were Christians in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our past or whatever. Uh, we all have enemies that seem to be fighting against us, um, raging against the kingdom of God and so forth. And we think, well, that's always going to be that way. No. I mean, look at how the Lord, he converts people. Consider Paul. The We had it in the... We had in the epistle lesson from Sunday where, where uh, Paul says that uh, I'm the greatest of sinners. And yet the Lord saved him. Did I tell you guys the story where I, when I was 19, I was goofing around in Jerusalem and I would always write Bible passages on the back of the letters that I would send to Carrie. And I wrote that verse from first Timothy that says, uh, even though I'm the chief of sinners, Christ has had mercy on me. And Carrie said, she got that letter and said, what did he do? <laughs> but we all recognize that we are the, uh, the chief of sinners and that that's what the Lord does. He changes hearts. The Lord changes hearts. So I, I want you to think of the heart right now that you think is the farthest from the kingdom of God. That person uh, is as far from the kingdom of God as the person right on the edge of being baptized, because all of it is the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And that person that you think is alienated from the kingdom of God, you are not authorized to despair because the Lord loves them. In fact, he loves them more than you love them. The Lord changes hearts. That's what he does. I, I, I wonder how this changes our, our life uh, as individuals, as families, I wonder how it changes our prayers, and I wonder how it changes the life of the church. The, the evangelical church has, the Lord has preserved this in the evangelical church. It's probably why they're called evangelical, is because they have kept this expectation of conversion. If you see some, if you meet an evangelical, and you're not an evangelical, and you're not a Christian, well, they, they are just thinking, how is God going to capture this person's heart? Or maybe they're thinking, how am I going to capture this person? I mean, who knows? What, but this is the idea. They, they, they think this person will surely be a Christian. This is, this is how we also ought to think. Anyway. Got it? Okay. Uh, I saw in the chat, where'd that chat go? Uh, Lutherans are not, don't have a reputation for evangelism. I think this is part of the problem. I think this is part of the problem that we have lost this expect expectation of, of conversion. Uh, Matt says, sometimes we're guilty of treating those already in the Lutheran church this way, that their hearts will never change away from false teaching. It's not worth the conversation. Yeah, no, we, we, this is, uh, th this is not, hmm. the Lord changes people. The Lord rescues, the Lord converts. It's what he does. It's his, it's his business. He's good at it. Elizabeth says, this conversation brings to mind Monica, who prayed ceaselessly for Augustine. God's will was done. Yeah. Uh, parents especially. I think the um, I think the, the the Lord has a special way to hear the prayers of parents and to and to answer them. Okay. Okay. Back to it here. 
Uh, in time, the anger of the, that rage and heat of anger is allayed, and it's surely likely that Esau was pacified to a great extent during the 12 or more years Jacob remained in Mesopotamia. So his heart was changed toward his brother. Uh, in addition, there was his temporal success, which was by no means diminished. Indeed, his godless presumption that he would keep the blessing in spite of this was increased. Now, here's an interesting read on things. So Luther's saying that when Jacob left, Esau said, oh, maybe he didn't get the blessing because Esau continues to get richer and have more power and his kingdom is expanding and expanding the whole time. Although he had been appointed heir of the royal authority and the priesthood, he does not have very much success. This is Jacob. Because he's driven into exile, his lot and his entire life seem more like a curse than a blessing. But Esau remains in possession since Isaac, after being deprived of his sight, had given up the management of the household and the church. So Esau remains lord of the house during Jacob's absence and engages in his usual work, just as he done, had done up to this time. So Esau, things don't actually change that much for Esau after Jacob gets the blessing uh, there. Someone says, my screen is not reloading. Let's just fix that here. Hopefully that. Um, Luther's going to talk a little bit more about, and I'm going to maybe move, uh, move past this a little bit. Um, uh, where Luther's going to kind of guess about the inner workings of the family of Esau, especially, and how things are going to unfold. Uh, let him who's been blessed go. We remain in the house. He's a fugitive, the wives say. Perhaps Isaac was out of his mind when he, he was deceived by that stupid Rebecca. This is the wives of Esau trying to figure things out. We are the wives of the prince and the priest. We are the daughters-in-laws of Isaac to whom the promise was made. We won't bother about the fugitive, Jacob. Such were undoubtedly the thoughts of all who were in the household of Esau. For when there is prosperity and false persuasion about the blessing is added, people say at once, God is well disposed toward us. But prosperity and godless opinions make people proud and smug. Do you want a... Do you want a sentence to describe the condition of our own times? Prosperity and a godless opinion make people proud and smug. It's also possible that Esau, now again here, just we're paying attention to how Luther is, is paying very careful attention to the things that are happening and trying to backfill the story remembering that these are real people and with real thoughts and real struggles and real lives and everything. It's possible that Esau, with his wives and children, was mollified when he thought, yeah, and he was fully convinced that Jacob's blessing was of no use. Since the latter was not being protected by a divine miracle, but God was forsaking him, and permitted him to be driven out of the house, even by his father and his mother. Therefore, he could not conclude anything else than that God had made this blessing ineffectual. So if Esau is to judge by his own eyes what's happening, he comes and he says, 
Isaac tried to give the, Jacob tried to steal the blessing from me, but it didn't work. And look, now the blessing is going, the blessing continues with me. So that's the, um, that's the thought of what's going on now uh, with, uh, with Esau. Okay. We should not take, uh, we should not think that this took place without a severe trial and utmost grief for the parents. Surely Rebecca's faith, oh, oh I, I, let me, how can I highlight this for you all as well? This, this, if you, if you can see it, I think this is how Luther reads the Bible. I, I should have found passages that talk like this in other places, but if, if you want a sort of a hermeneutic for Luther, like a way that he looks at things, uh, you, you, I, I could give you three, I'll give you three ways that Luther just, that they're, they're like frameworks in his mind. That, that like the, you know how this, like people have a, a mental sort of structure that they work, that they work in and they, and everything that kind of fits one way or another. Luther has a, some, some structures in his mind. The first is the three estates, family, church, and state, and connected to that is vocation. And built upon that is law and gospel. So Luther understands really law and gospel in vocational terms. So that is, what does the law do? What's the job of the law? And what's the gospel do? What's the vocation of the gospel? And connected to that, the gospel comes to us through suffering. And so he reads things in terms of suffering. If you, if you ask Luther, what's the Old Testament about? He would probably say, the suffering of the saints on account of their faith in Christ. <laughs> Someone can challenge me on that, where you get a, a place where Luther talks about what the Old Testament is about, and he doesn't say that. But that's basically the idea. When he looks at the saints, he sees, he reads it in terms of suffering. So, so when he sees Esau prevailing, and he sees the bitterness that Esau's wives, the, the Hittite women, are causing to Rebekah, and when he sees Isaac and his blindness, and he sees Jacob in his exile, he sees that Christian life in terms of suffering. Do you remember when this would be in um, this would be in Luther's introduction to his German works? And he's and he and someone says he's basically talking about how do you read the Bible? And he says, there's three rules. We learn it from Psalm, from Psalm 119. We, we learn three rules from reading the Bible. The first is prayer, oratio. And, um, th and this, this first one and the second one are from the medieval system. If you were a monk, they said, well, how do you do theology? It's meditation and prayer and contemplation. Meditatio, oratio, contemplatio. And Luther switched the order of the first two. It wasn't meditation and prayer. It was prayer first and then meditation, which basically Luther means that we read the Bible, that we read it out loud. 
So prayer and reading. And then the third place is where Luther really, really changes things. Because the medieval way was prayer, reading, prayer, and contemplating, contemplatio, the ascent of the spirit to heaven. But Luther says, no, it's prayer, reading, and suffering. Tentatio, which uh, some in German is anfektum. That's the uh, that's the trial of the Christian. Trials, afflictions, sufferings, temptations. This is the Christian life. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. And so he sees this in the lives of the saints that are there. He he sees them. He's, he he understands all of it in terms of suffering. So we should not think that this took place without a severe trial and utmost grief to the parents. Surely Rebecca's faith again began to be in trouble, for it grieved her greatly that Esau remained in his former power during Jacob's absence. Yet the sentiments of such godly parents cannot be adequately explained or weighed. My own faith surely would not be able to bear that much. She, Rebecca, has now been a mother for 77 years. For that many years have elapsed since the prophecy was spoken when, when, still, when she still had the twins in her womb, the elder will serve the younger. During these years, she waited anxiously for the blessing. Jacob waited with her. For this reason, he lived in a state of celibacy without a wife and children as one who was cast aside and scorned. Meanwhile, Esau married two wives when he was 40 years old and now had children and children's children. He is the Lord, prince, and priest of the house. Rebecca had been compelled to bear and look at this every day for such a long time. Nevertheless, she holds out even while her two daughters-in-law are in control. They were two sources of bitterness for her uh, because they tormented the aged Isaac and the true lady of the house, for Rebecca had to turn over to them the keys and all the management. Therefore, consider whether this faith and hope of Rebecca, who waits so patiently for the blessing, is not outstanding. See? What about Isaac? So Rebecca's suffering. Now Isaac's suffering. In addition to various trials and vexations, he had the misfortune and almost unbearable cross that in his old age he was deprived of his sight. In his venerable old age, he does not see the sun or other things that were necessary and pleasing for him to look at. Occasionally, he hears complaints from his wife, Rebecca, from his son, Jacob, or from the rest of the household about the arrogant rule and the outrages of the Esauites. This he can deplore and complain about, but he can't correct it. And from the antecedent, one deduces the consequent, namely that his son Esau had degenerated completely since he was captivated more by the religion and the customs of the heathen than by the godliness that the, uh, and the teaching of his father, especially because of his Hittite wife, because his daughter-in-laws were heathen. They were also hostile to the true doctrine and were quite insolent on account of their husband's authority. Therefore, the faith of these most saintly parents is tried and exercised to such an extent that our hearts are unable able either to grasp or understand it by reflecting on it. And this continued, not for 10 or 20, but for more than 100 years. Maybe not, well, 
Yeah, they lived that long, so that's right. But what a great misfortune it is for such a great man whom God loved to such an extent that he blessed him and promised him the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven and of eternal life to sit in darkness, remember he's blind, in sorrow and in vexations of every kind for so many years. God lets him be deprived of his eyesight and tortured by so many great troubles. Why then shall we murmur? Why shall we be angry with God if some adversity or some misfortune befalls us? All those afflictions of the patriarchs are nothing when compared with Christ's suffering, yet they af affect our hearts more, for Christ's suffering was not perfectly understood by us, and we do not believe that he was such a wretched and abject man as he actually was. Now, this is a, this is a very, very interesting point. Luther says that um, the sufferings of the saints affect us in a different way than the sufferings of Christ. I, I, I remember reading this, that it's, you know, when you listen to the, when you hear the stories of the martyrs, have you noticed this? So you hear the stories of the martyrs and, um, and it makes you bold, like heroic. Do you hear the sufferings of Christ? And it does not have that same effect, like of stoking that boldness in our own hearts. There's a good reason for that. Uh, there's also a bad reason here. Luther's reflecting on the bad reason is we don't understand how Christ also truly suffered. We don't, we think, oh, he was God. And so his suffering can't be that bad. How bad could God suffer? Where the scripture gives us the divinity of Christ as an increase in the capacity of Jesus to suffer, not as a decrease in the ability of Jesus to suffer, but that's a little beyond our comprehension. Uh, everybody thinks that since he was God, he could easily bear and overcome everything. Surely there's nobody who could compare himself to Isaac and could show the same endurance and steadfastness and misfortune. Anyway, the point is that, that we see this suffering all the way through. We see it in Christ, our Lord Jesus suffers, and we see it also in those who belong to Christ, to the Christians, as Dr. Schultz says. Um, so the, all those who belong to Jesus also belong to his cross, or his cross belongs to us. Erland, that looks like a um, uh, document about Onfictun from the seminary. That I imagine that's great. So you guys see that link there? That would be that would be a good one to track down. Furthermore, everybody uh, thinks that since he was God, oh yeah, I said that. Surely there's no, I said that already. The faith of these parents was surely put to a test and found purer than gold, 1 Peter 1. And in this faith and hope, they finally obtained what they longed for. The Hebrew text has, let's see how we're doing on time, 10.50. Yeah, okay, good. A couple more paragraphs. Where was that? The Hebrew text has, Yamim Aharim, Latin Dibusunus. Our translation to Latin is Pausus Dibus, a few days. In German, it would be Einorda Zentaga, one or two days. That's what uh, his fury turns away for a few days. This is this part here, a few days. Oops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There it is. 
at the end, she tells why she orders him to go away. Why should I be bereft of both of you in a day? The very sagacious woman sees that if Esau were to kill his brother as a murderer, he'd have to be punished with death in accordance with the law universally approved from the beginning, or like Cain, driven to exile, etc. Why then does she not keep him with her since she knows that he should, uh, should expect with certainty that God will keep him safe? The answer, same as above. Of course, Rebecca could have said, stay with me. I have no fear at all of your angry brother. The Lord will be concerned about you. He will protect you in accordance with the blessing. But she does not do this. For by her example, she wants to teach that one should believe everything God says and put hope in him, but should not tempt God. Again, back to the point. We can trust and act. So, trust, believe God, trust in God, hope in God. But do not tempt God. Use the means that he's given to us. Her faith is altogether sure and firm because of the word and promise that uh, he has. She could have concluded, my son has the blessing. Let it happen, which must happen. He cannot perish. I'll let him stay home. This is what had been stated earlier about the godless and irreligious people who refer everything to some faded governance of God. But this godly and sensible woman makes use of the means that are at hand and has been and have been provided by God. Thus, one should not say, I do not want to eat. I do not want to drink. If I am to live, I shall live. If I am not to live, food and drink will be of no benefit. No, God has given you food to eat. Likewise, you cannot say, I'm a man. I shall be a father, even if I don't marry. Who would not regard someone with such thoughts as mad? For you must make use of the gifts that God has been put at your disposal. You must not leave it to predestination or to a promise. We should not speculate on the outcome of affairs without the word. On the other hand, we should have no doubt about a promise. Where there's no promise, there nothing should be attempted. But one should follow the example of, Re of Rebecca, who could rely on the promise. Jacob will live because he must become the father of descendants and so forth. But she does not despise the means that are offered. Indeed, she makes use of them to enable her son to escape the danger. This is surely what it means to believe and yet not to tempt God. Believe, not tempt. See? Believe and act. On the other hand, not to believe God when he promises and to tempt him are one and the same thing, and a very serious sin is committed on both sides. Because God wants us to make use of the creatures he has given, and he has given them for us to use. Consequently, one should not tempt God as the Jews tempted him in the wilderness and were severely punished. This example is adduced by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, where he says, let us not tempt God as they did, and so many were destroyed by the serpents. One must detest that exceedingly pernicious madness of the fanatics in which, in spite of all, is becoming widespread today and has been stated previously. For such people undermine all godliness by leaving everything to predestination, even though they have no word on which to base what they do. Furthermore, Rebecca sends Jacob away, not only that he may avoid his brother's fury, but also because she's thinking about providing a wife for her son. So go to my brother. I think she probably had news about these eligible bachelorettes there in her brother's house and the hope for Jacob to get married. She does not think of this fanatics. She doesn't say he has the blessing. It's all the same, whether he remains in the land or not, whether he marries or not. 
He will nevertheless be a father of the seed and will have everlasting offspring. Even if he marries a Canaanite woman, and I regard the Canaanite woman as unworthy of the honor, yet the Lord will bring it about that she becomes a worthy mother of this child. She has no such thought. She shuns the Canaanite woman from whom she has always turned away. And for Isaac's sake, she does as much as she can to induce Jacob to take a wife from her own people. Hence, in all our affairs and actions, this example of Rebecca should admonish us to do what lies in our power, that is, to make use of the means in accordance with the promise, and later to entrust the outcome and the predetermination to God. For you have the word and command of God. You should know what, that you must walk according to them, lest you stumble. We can't put the word and the command against one another. We can't say, I mean, the command and the promise. We can't say God has promised eternal life, and therefore we don't need to preach the word. You, you see, you can't, you, you, we're trusting and doing. We're doing according to the commandments, and we're trusting according to the promise. You have the words and the commands of God. You should know that you must walk according to them lest you stumble. But those who stray outside the promise and devise a special outcome for themselves on the basis of the divine promise lose both God's command and his promise. But this contempt for the God who commands and promises, uh, this is contempt for the God who commands and promises. Rebecca, a woman with very much experience, wants to avoid the great sin. Although she was now sure about the promise, yet she was, uh, uh, was yeah, she was concerned about the outcome. She makes use of the means that had to be employed. Okay. Okay. Then we have this. This is the last mention of Rebecca in the entire account. So we remember. Um, we remember now Rebecca and her and her godliness. All right, that's probably a good spot to wind up. That takes us all the way now to verse forty-six. So, um, so we'll rejoice in in that. Uh, uh, those verses of this plot of Rebecca to send Jacob away to escape the anger of Esau, and then, um, uh, and then we'll see what follows as a. Uh, as Jacob din departs and goes. Okay. Well, let's say a prayer and then we'll all jump on and see what other questions you guys have, what other thoughts you have as well. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us your wisdom so that we would trust your promises and act according to your commands with the means that you've put in front of us. We pray that you would protect us from the twin evils of doing nothing or despairing of your goodness, that we would live in this world as uh, wise, courageous, uh, and comforted people as free, but not using our freedom as a cloak for vice. Grant us this gift for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being part of it. Uh, let's see.